Well, Louise has been taking us through the book of James over the last uh, month or so, and we come to a passage, James 2.14. So if you have your Bible, you might like to open it. James 2.14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God? Good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were actually working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? So what is James saying here? I mean, does he mean that our salvation is determined by our deeds? I mean, can that be the case? And if that is the case, how many deeds are required to save us from God's judgment? I have to say, I don't like the idea of going to hell. I don't like the idea of eternal separation from God. I want to know. I really do. I want to know how many deeds are required. If it requires a certain number of deeds, I really want to know. Would, say, one good deed per week be enough? Or would it be good enough if I did one good deed just before I died? Or would I need to do a good deed every day of my life? Would that be enough to ensure my salvation? I mean, is that what James is saying here? I mean, he does say that faith without action is dead. I mean, that's fairly serious, isn't it? to say that your faith is dead without action. And if we're going to stake our eternal future on our understanding of saving faith, we really need to work hard, don't we, to understand and know the truth. Let's face it, there is a lot at stake here. There really is. There's a lot at stake. Now, is everyone kind of familiar with the name Martin Luther? If I said to you, Martin Luther, would you have some idea what, what I was talking about? I'm sure you might have heard of this guy, but you may not know much about him. Martin Luther was a, I guess you could say, was just a small-time priest who lived in Germany in the 16th century. So he's living in the, you know, the 1500s. So it's, it's a jolly long time ago. So he's living in this probably fairly obscure little village out in the middle of nowhere. And at this time, Martin Luther... He was the main instigator of what has now become known as the Reformation. I'm sure you would have heard of that as well. And 
The interesting thing is that the Reformation, which we have to say kind of changed the whole world, but certainly the whole Western world, largely hinged on this passage, his understanding of this passage. Now, if you're wondering what the Reformation was about, well, that was something that happened at this time in the 16th century. And it, the birth of, that came out of that was Protestantism. And if you're wondering what all that's about, you would have heard of Catholics, Catholicism. Well, up until this point, the Catholic Church was it. That was all there was. It was just the, the Catholic Church. But of course, now we have all the Protestant churches. The Church of England, and you know, it just goes on and on. There's all these denominations that fall under this big heading of Protestantism. Now, the scandal of the church at this time was that priests, priests were selling what was known as indulgences. And the basic idea behind the indulgence was based on this passage. You see, the priest said, look, I have so many good deeds on my role in heaven. I have so many good deeds that I don't actually need all those good deeds to get into heaven. And if you get a whole lot of priests all together and they all start saying, hey, we've got more good deeds than we know what to do with. But you guys have more money than you know what to do with, but you don't have a lot of good deeds. And then they came up with this idea of purgatory. So when someone died, they didn't go straight to hell. They kind of went to this thing that's not in the Bible. They invented this thing called purgatory. And then they were able to say to someone who's just lost their mum or their dad, hey, look, I've got so many good deeds. Your dad was a bit of a rat bag, but I tell you what, you give me some money and I'll say a prayer and I'll give over some of my credit in heaven and mum or dad can pop out of purgatory and go off to heaven. And they end up having this saying, they said, every time the coin hits the bottom of the timber plate, a soul springs from purgatory. And that's how they built St Peter's. Huge big church in Rome because they sold indulgences, which is not in the Bible. And it kind of loosely hinges on this passage. And Martin Luther, he looked at all this and just basically says, hang on a minute. This doesn't actually line up with what the Bible says. And eventually he wrote out this, this bit of paper and he nailed it to the door of his church. And the 95 Thesis. John, you know what you're on about? That's what it was called. So an understanding of this passage is really important when you realise just how much of the history of the last 500 years has been deeply affected by a messed up understanding of this passage. So we come back to the question, can works save me? What does the Bible actually say about this? Well, if you have a look at a passage like Romans, this is Paul writing to the Romans, Romans 1 verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation, the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And he says, For in the gospel... A righteousness from God, not from us, but from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, from the first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul here is quoting the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Or in Ephesians, and this is a great passage, Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
You can't get much clearer than that, can you? You really can't. That is so clear. Salvation can't be by works. God has reached out to us. And right from the very beginning, when God said to Abraham, Father Abraham, he said, I will be your God and I will build through you a people for myself. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. God said, I will do this. Not you will do it. I will do it. I will give it all to you. It will be by grace. So that brings us back to the question. Then. So what is James speaking about here? How are we to understand this passage? What does this passage have to teach us? Well, there's a word that you probably won't hear a lot in life. It's a, per- it's a word you probably haven't heard before. But it's a word that is just packed with meaning. In English, we tend to call it, we tend to say, you know, Shekinah. Have you heard of that word? Shekinah. But in Hebrew, it's Shekinah. Let's all say it together. Shekinah. You know what Shekinah means? It's a Hebrew word and it means, it helps us to understand this passage in James. It means resting place. Shekinah. It's the kind of word I reckon I can imagine getting into bed tonight, late after, you know, you have a big day, you get in the bed and you go, Shekinah. It's got that sense about it, hasn't it? Kind of resting place. It came to be used by Jewish writers to describe the visible symbol, the resting place of God's presence. First in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. You see, it was the visible symbol of God's presence resting on a certain place. You know, one of the first times that we see, the, uh, see this idea of God's presence, the Shekinah of God, is when Moses is out... He's out just tending sheep. You know the story that he's raised in Pharaoh's household. He ends up murdering an Egyptian. He flees. 40 years he's just out looking after sheep and goats. And then one day he's wandering along and he sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not kind of burning. And he goes up and he goes, what is going on here? And this voice from the burning bush says, take your shoes off, mate. You're on holy ground. He goes, oh, who is it? (laughs) And it's God. God is actually in the burning bush. It's like the symbol of God's presence was that the bush was burning, but it wasn't actually being devoured by the flame. So that's one of the first times we see it. But then we have this, the tent of meeting. And we read in Exodus, this is when Moses, you know, many years later, God says to him, go into Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And they have the ten plagues and all that. He gets them out. And then they're wandering around the wilderness And then God was with them. And the presence of God in the daytime was a pillar of cloud. And at nighttime, it was like a pillar of fire. Imagine that. That was the Shekinah of God that was there. And it tells us in Exodus 33 that regularly Moses would go outside of the camp, some distance away, and he went to the, he set up a tent and he called it the tent of meeting, right? And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And get this, it says, As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. 
Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they stood and worshipped God, each at the entrance to his own tent. And it says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one man speaks to his friend. It's an amazing image, isn't it? Of God and Moses. But that pillar of cloud was called the Shekinah of God. And then later on, we read about the tabernacle. You know, when they set the tabernacle up, they they built this beautiful ark, the ark of the covenant. They put the Ten Commandments in it and they set up this tent that had a court around it. It was all divided off. And the cloud would come down on top of the tabernacle as well. Once and again, it was the Shekinah of God. And then many years later, David decided that he was going to build a temple to the Lord. But God said, no, no, mate, you've got too much blood on your hands. We will have someone else that will set it up. But anyway, on the way, he's got the, he's got the uh, ark there and he wants to do something for God. And they sac- it says they sac- sacrificed more sheep and goats to the Lord, sheep and cattle and goats and stuff to the Lord that day that they couldn't even count them. It was this huge worship time. And it says in 2 Chronicles 5, it says, The temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Can you imagine if that happened today? Can you imagine if that happened here? That we're meeting and suddenly we're going, what's on fire? What is that? And smoke just starts filling the place and you realise, no, this is the Shekinah of God. God is actually here and it's it's kind of visible smoke. It's just filling his presence. It's filling the place. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the effect was that the priests could not perform their service. That is the Shekinah of God, the visible presence of the Lord with his people. So I want you to get that. It's the visible presence. Now, what happened between then and now? Why is it that we don't have the Shekinah of God appearing like that, like a pillar of cloud above each church? I mean, is this the same God we worship today? I would say yes, it is. We worship the same God. Well, what has happened? We don't sacrifice hundreds of sheep and cattle. We don't have the pillar of cloud representing the Lord. We see everything change with Jesus. God's plan was, th- was that things would not stay like that forever. And we see just a little hint of this in Leviticus 26. See, God said this, he goes, and this is back in the day, in the Old Testament, back in the day when they used to do the sacrifices. He said, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Do you see what he's saying there? God does not want to dwell in a building. The building doesn't matter to God. God does not want to dwell in a tent or a building. God wants to dwell with us. We matter to God, not the building. God wants to be with us. And then later on through the prophet Ezekiel, he said these words. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you from the inside out 
to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God is starting to reveal that he wants to live where? In here. He wants to live within his people. And then in the New Testament, after Christ, the picture becomes even clearer. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth these things. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? So do you see what has happened between then and now? Because of Jesus, the way to God has been opened up. And now the Holy Spirit can come and live within us. In the beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, in the cool of the evening. After they sinned, God came, came down. He's walking along going, Adam, Adam, where are you, mate? Eve. And they're hiding. He came to have a walk with them. And so that's what he did every day. And they were embarrassed. They felt naked because of their sin. See, God wants to walk with his people. But sin put a barrier there. But through Christ, he's fixed all that up. And we are now his temple. So how does all this relate to our passage in James? Well, I hear, yeah, I hear you ask that, I guess. Yes? Read that out for me, John. Yes. Uh, he created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us. Yes. For we are God's workmanship, his mastership, created in Christ Jesus to do good stuff that he planned. Another passage says before the creation of the world. God wants to live within us, okay? God works, good, sorry, good works, I want you to get this, good works are the Shekinah, the visible presence of God in the life of the believer. You get that? Just as the dark cloud hovered over and invaded the temple as a symbol of God's presence, good works hover over and invade the life of the believer when the Holy Spirit moves into your life. He says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? See, basically what James is saying is, where there's no smoke, there's no fire. Where there's no smoke, where there's no good works, there's no fire. There's no Holy Spirit. You see, God cannot be anything but consistent. It's part of his very nature. God simply has to be himself at all times. He's the one who never changes. Now, part of God's character, part of, of who he is, is that he does nice things. He is kind and good. Now, if God is going to, as he promised, make his dwelling place in us when we repent and ask him to forgive that, he's not going to dwell in us and then not cause us to do good things. Does that make sense? So when the Holy Spirit moves into us, he changes us, and a result of that is the kind of smoke of good works. It's an indication of what has already happened. James gives an illustration to make his point. He says, suppose a brother or sister is out with, without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and, and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
Suppose a brother or sister walks in completely naked. That's what the Greek indicates. No clothes. I want you to imagine it. They're starving, hungry, they haven't eaten for days, and you say to them, all the best. All the best. Keep well. Have a good trip, mate. Stay well fed. You're looking a bit thin. Or as Seinfeld said, take care. Take care because I won't be taking care from now on. So you take care. I mean, that would not make any sense, would it? That would not give the appearance of God living in that person. If good works are like the cloud that hung over the tent of meeting, would that person appear to have the smoke of God around their life? I would say no. That's what I believe James is saying. If someone treats a brother or sister in need like this, they walk in naked and starving and you do nothing, how can the Holy Spirit be living in you? And it says it in every... not Because I know that's an extreme example. But the way we treat everyone says something about the Shekinah of God. Good, need, good deeds do not earn salvation. One does not already have, okay? You can't earn the salvation that you don't already have. But they do provide evidence of salvation received in faith. You cannot have, have God living in you and ignore the suffering of others. Now, that's, that's a challenging statement, isn't it? It really is. Faith, real faith, is about so much more than simply believing. Now, so many people have said to me, I believe in God. As though that is all required, all that's needed, all that's required. You know, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. But as he says, big deal. Big deal. Even the, the demons believe that and shudder. Being a Christian is about God living with his people and the result of that is good works in your life. Becoming a Christian is about God finding a resting place in you. That's what he wants. God wants to dwell in his people. You know, Jesus told this, this amazing parable in Matthew 25, and it kind of sums it up really well. He says, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. You got the image? It's an amazing image, isn't it? What is going on out there? Someone's having fun. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. They're kind of shocking words, aren't they? They are. They, they shock me every time I read them. But Jesus said those words. I can't help after reading that feeling that there are many people who genuinely believe they're saved. They think that God lives in them because they said a few words long ago. They hang on to those words like, believe and be saved. They say, no, I, no, I prayed that prayer when I was seven years old and mum said that's all I needed to do. I couldn't earn my salvation. But you see, the Shekinah of God never rested on the person. They hang on to those words. They believe in God. So therefore, in their mind, they're saved. That doesn't seem to be what James is saying, however. Being a Christian is about inviting God to invade your life. It's about giving him control of your life. See, that's what Lord means. As I've said to you many times over the years, it's who he is. It's not his name. It's not his name. It's who he is. He is either your Lord or he's not. I've got a cousin who, or it's actually Louise's cousin. He's a doctor and he works in, you know, in a big hospital and he deals with a lot of people all the time. And he knows because he talks to Christians. He's not a Christian. I remember one day talking to him and he's, he knows that I'm a pastor, so he starts talking about the Lord. And so he knows the Lord. Oh, no, he doesn't know the Lord at all. He just talks to Christians all the time. They talk about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Then I said to him, mate, you don't know him. He's not your Lord. It's not his name. But just because we invoke the name doesn't mean he is. Jesus said... You will love me if you do what I say. If you're obedient, if you live the way I tell you to live. That's what it means to love me. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, there will be the Shekinah of God. And the Shekinah of God over your life will be this kind of halo of good works. It will be the smell of good works. People will smell the aroma of the Holy Spirit on you because they'll see the good works just emanating from your life. So let me finish just by asking you this tonight. Is the aroma of God's Holy Spirit radiating from your life? Would those looking at your life declare, I see the presence of God resting on that person's life. I see it through the way they live through their deeds. As someone once said, and I think it's interesting that this, this week we've got 
these girls coming to speak who were arrested for being Christian. And I, I find it interesting when you read their story to ask myself the question, would there be enough evidence that I'm a Christian? If someone wanted to convict me of being a Christ follower, would there be enough evidence in my life? Other than me just saying I am, would there be enough evidence from the presence of God, the Shekinah of God, to convict me of being a Christian? It's a good thing to think about, isn't it? Is the aroma of God radiating from my life? Because you can't generate that aroma. You, you, you can't somehow produce it. God produces it. All you can do is invite God into your life to live within you. And then he produces all of that when he moves in. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we've read some really confronting words tonight from your word. They're words that convict us about how we live. And that's good. We, we need to be convicted. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I, I kind of don't know whether there's enough evidence. I don't know whether people are going to see God in my life. I don't know whether that aroma of the Holy Spirit is there. But maybe you're saying, Lord, I want it. I want that. I want you to move in. I want you to start changing me from the inside out. I want you to change my appetites. Because at the moment I've got a fierce appetite for sin and I want that changed. I want you to teach me to have new appetites. And I want my life to just radiate your presence so that there would be no doubt. People would know for sure that I'm yours and that the Holy Spirit is living in me. And I want people to look at my life and say, there is an anointing of the Holy Spirit on that guy. If that is you, I just would challenge you tonight. I don't know where you're at. We're all at a different place with God. But I would challenge you tonight. And you may have done this before, but we just keep on doing it. We say, Lord, I want to lay my life down at the foot of the cross, at your feet, and say, can you deal with it? Because I can't. Can you deal with my sin and my rebellion? I know you can. I want you to wash me clean. And I want you to move into me and live within me. I want to be your temple, but I know that that's going to come with some really significant responsibilities about living a holy life. As your word says, be holy for I am holy. Lord, help us to live holy, righteous lives that emanate your presence in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.